everybody. Well, my name is Jean, and I come to the downtown church. I also work at our North Liberty Church, so you might see me if you ever are up there working in the office. But I wanted to, I'm going to read a story from the Jesus Storybook Bible today. But before that, I just, we couldn't not mention that we had kind of a scary storm earlier this week, didn't we? Do you guys know about that storm? We, we all thought it was just going to be a little thunderstorm. Yeah. Your power went out. Whose power went out? Everybody? Yeah. Oh, my word. Well, it was, it was, it was scary, wasn't it? Were any of you guys scared? Were you scared a little bit? Yep. <laughs> Oh, no. I know. Well, today's story is about two shepherds. Now, the first, how does a storm and shepherds, what do they have to do with each other? Do you guys know what a shepherd is? A shepherd takes care of? Of sheep. Right. Very good. So he doesn't only, he cares for the sheep, he protects the sheep, and sheep can you know, they know that. They know the voice of their shepherd. Now, today's story is about two shepherds. The first shepherd is a man named David. And you'll learn in the story that David started as a shepherd caring for sheep, but then he also became a king. And he had, he had quite an amazing life. But the other shepherd is our shepherd. Now, we're not sheep. We don't go, bah, do we? Do you, do you talk like, do you go bad? No, I don't either. We talk like this, right? Yeah. Why would we need a shepherd? Because we need somebody to care for a, us too. We need, a king, but we, don't need a shepherd. we need, we need a shepherd and a king. So I'm going to go ahead and read this story, which happens to be called the good shepherd. Okay. If you want to see the pictures, feel free to scoot over just a little bit. Okay. I'll try to do the microphone. Oh, and parents, I want to let you know, if you want to talk about this with your kids later, um, this story is from Psalm 51, Psalm 23, and 2 Samuel 7, okay? So here we go. David was a shepherd, but when God looked at him, he saw a king. Sure enough, when David grew up, that's just what he became. And David was a great king. He had a heart like God's heart full of love. Now that didn't mean he was perfect because he did some terrible things. He even murdered a man. That means he killed someone. No, David made a big mess of his life, but God can take even the biggest mess and make it work in his plan. I need a new heart, Lord, David prayed, because mine is full of sin. Make me clean inside, David prayed. And God heard David's prayer he forgave David, and he made David a promise. I will make you great, David, and one day a king will be born in your family, and he will heal the whole world. Did you know also, you guys, that David was a songwriter? Yeah. In fact, his songs were so good that they might have even been in the top 40 charts, if they had top 40 charts back then. 
So David's songs are like prayers, okay? They are called psalms. Sounds sort of like songs, but it's psalms, okay? And this one is called the Song of the Shepherd. It's probably number one on the psalm charts. And it goes like this. And think about this song and this prayer for like when you're scared, like in a scary storm. This is something that you could pray. God is my shepherd and I am his little lamb. He feeds me. He guides me. He looks after me. I have everything I need. Inside, my heart is very quiet and quiet, um, as quiet as lying still in soft green grass in a meadow by a little stream. Even when I walk through the dark and scary and lonely places, I won't be afraid because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me and he makes me strong and brave. Isn't that a great prayer? He is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me and you. Everything I ever dreamed of, he fills my heart so full of happiness, I can't hold it all inside. Wherever I go, I know God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love will go to. God gave Daniel that song to sing to his people so that they would know that he loved them and he would always look after them like a shepherd loves his sheep. And one day, God was going to do something that would inspire thousands upon thousands of new songs. God was going to show his people once and for all just how much he loved them. Another shepherd was coming. This is our shepherd. He would be called the good shepherd. He was a greater shepherd. And this shepherd was going to lead all of God's lambs back to the place where they had always belonged, close to God's heart. That is what Jesus, our good shepherd, does for us. Amen. <laughs> you guys can go back and sit down with your parents, okay? Thanks. <laughs>
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he did bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks. It's been a long time, gosh, maybe February, since I have preached here uh, in the downtown campus. Of course, Stacy and I attend here, but it's good to be back uh, behind the pulpit teaching the Word of God. The scripture that Melissa just read there, we're continuing our series uh, through the book of Exodus. We're looking, looking at the deliverance of God, God delivering His people from sin, and then to a covenant relationship with himself. And this text that Melissa just read probably will go down, I don't know, Gene was talking about the top 40 in terms of the Psalms. This is probably going to go down at least top three of the what the heck were you thinking moments for the nation of Israel. When you look at this in terms of what God has done and then what they just did, it's one of those scriptures that when you listen to it read or you read it yourself, you're just thinking to yourself, how, how in the world could you go from being delivered from Egypt, experiencing the 10 plagues, experiencing the Red Sea, experiencing the, the, the water from the rock, experiencing the manna, experiencing the quail, and then hearing the Ten Commandments given, and then saying, we're good, we're all good with that, count us in, and then 40 days later, you're worshiping a golden calf. It's one of those things where you're like, what were you thinking? Now, here's the question. It's easy for us in our contemporary culture to look backwards in hindsight and scratch our heads and say, what were you thinking? Turn it around, look in the mirror, and take a look at the stiff-necked person that looks back at you and answer this question for yourself. Think in your mind the last what was I thinking moment. Not Israel's what was I thinking moment, but your what was I thinking moment. Now, that could have been last week. It could have been something fairly minor, 
Or for some of you, you're looking back and you're thinking about a what was I thinking moment that's brought a lot of pain, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt to your own life, and possibly potentially pain and suffering to those whom you love. Okay, so everybody here has a what was I thinking moment, a story of personal regret, something that you knew you shouldn't have done it before you did it, but you did it anyway. For me personally, I can look back, and if I had a yellow pad of paper, I could fill up the whole legal pad, depending on how far I go back. Before I was a Christian, I had uh, violated my own conscience. I had a fairly low standard, and I couldn't keep the standard that I had. And, and I had a lot of shame. I had a lot of regret. I had a lot of guilt that was going through that, through that. But then even since I've become a Christian over the last 30 years, even in the last weeks, I can't go 24 hours where, where there's not something that I'll think to myself, what were you thinking? Now, the longer I followed Christ, most of those what were you thinking honestly are, are things of neglect, things that I didn't do but rather should have done. Love that I should have given towards my wife, towards my kids, towards my friends, towards my neighbors, but yet I was too consumed with my own desires. And so I, I, I didn't carry through on what I know I should do. So everybody here has those what was I thinking moments. What we're going to look at tonight as we look at this chapter in Exodus chapter 32, we're going to take a look at the answer to that question. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? What they did was violate the first two commandments of, of uh, the Ten Commandments. To, they, God says, you shall have no other gods besides me, and you shall not make a graven image and worship a graven image. They blew through those two. We're going to look at why. We're going to look at why, and it's going to actually, as we understand the why of their context, it's going to answer the very same question that you ask yourself, what was I thinking? Now, chances are pretty good none of you fashioned a golden image and sacrificed to it, but I will bet my mortgage and certainly Steve Shepherdly's mortgage and Jason's mortgage that every single person here has committed spiritual adultery, spiritual idolatry, which is simply the worship of that which is not God. So here's the three things that we're going to look at. As we look at Exodus chapter 32 this evening, we're going to take a look, first of all, at the nature of idolatry, as we see from the text and other scriptures. We're going to look at the consequences of idolatry, secondly, and then we're going to look at the remedy for idolatry. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that these scriptures, as Gene read from the children's Bible and as we are reading from Exodus chapter 32, they don't sugarcoat anything. We see your people at their worst. And we read stories from Psalm 51 and David's failure and Israel's failure with the golden calf. And we scratch our heads and we think, what were they thinking? And then we look in the mirror and we see our own failure, our own shame, our own uh, neglect, sins of neglect and sins of commission and omission. And we wonder, Lord, how can we be so stiff-necked? Uh, Lord, thank you that you record these stories and your Holy Spirit has inspired the authors to retell them so that we might see, Lord, that we are not alone and that we might have hope, not in our obedience to the law, but in hope, having hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ, our good 
and faithful shepherd. So help me to preach and teach in such a way that Christ is honored and Lord, every person here is edified. For those who need conviction, Spirit, that is your work. For those who need encouragement, Lord, encourage hearts. And for everyone here, Lord, give us the hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. So open up the text here. We're taking a look at Exodus chapter 32. We are taking a look at the golden calf story. Okay, so you remember, just for context here, they've been delivered out of Egypt. We're familiar with Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the ten plagues, the Passover, and the deliverance from Egypt. Then they find themselves on the banks of the Red Sea, and they are perilously close to death when all of a sudden God intervenes with a pillar of fire that holds the Egyptians back as the Red Sea parts. God's people go through, the Egyptians follow, the water crashes in, and the army of Pharaoh is drowned. Within three days of being on the other side of the Red Sea, they are without water and they are grumbling. They complain, God provides. Later, they are complaining again. They are grumbling because now they have no food. They complain, God provides. Then they want meat. They complain, God provides. And what you see is a pattern here that Israel, the people, the covenantal people of God, are taken to the very edge where they think they can't go one step further, and they're almost in despair And every single solitary time, God comes through and is their provider, and he is their deliverer. Every single time. Then we come to Exodus chapter 19, where God declares to them, I have delivered you out of Egypt as on wings of eagles, or on the wing of an eagle. And I have made you my treasured possession. I have made you a kingdom of priests, and I have made you a holy nation. So God gives them this covenantal identity as his priests, his holy nation, his treasured possession. And then he speaks to them, and he gives them his covenantal law. Because I have delivered you out of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. And he gives them the commandments. And after the commandments, they say, awesome, count us in. We're all for this. Then Moses goes up to spend time with the Lord face to face to get the tablets of stone, to get the tablets of stone. And then we pick it up in verse, in chapter 32, verse 1. Where's this Moses character? We don't know where he's at. We don't know what's happened to him. And then they make the golden calf. And you're like, how, how? How can you go from seeing this covenantal God provide, part the Red Sea, destroy Pharaoh's army, provide, provide, provide? You just heard his audible voice and you heard the commandments and you said, we're good. We will obey you. We will not worship other gods. And the first thing out of your mouth, the first trial after Moses leaves is, we've got to make a golden calf. We've got to worship our own gods. How do you get there? How do you get there? Now, we look at this and we scratch our heads, but given the context that they were in, it's not terribly surprising. 
When we think of Jewish people, we think of people who have a rich tradition and heritage. These Jewish people did not have a rich tradition and heritage. They knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob personally. Their culture that they were immersed in was a culture of idolatry. That's what they were used to. They were used to, when you have a need, you go to the gods. You go to the gods. So this is normal for them. This is normal for them. So this whole covenantal monotheistic religion with one God, this covenantal God, this is very new. This is very new. They haven't been out of Egypt that long. I'm not excusing this. I'm not excusing this, but it helps us to to, to understand their context. It'll also help us to identify with them. It'll also help us to identify with them. So what would contribute to their apostasy? Bottom line, if we want to summarize why they did what they did, it's simply a normal response when people do not believe that God is enough. Let me repeat that. They did what they did because that is a normal response when people do not believe that God is is enough. Where's Moses? Moses is their leader. Now, we look at this story and we think, how could you abandon God so quickly? God, when Moses goes up the mountain, up Sinai, he doesn't tell them, hey, hey, I'm going to go up. God and I, we're going to have a chat, mano a mano. I'm going to come down with the tablets. Probably going to take about 40 days. There is no, it's going to take 40 days. He just goes up the mountain. Now, when you look up the mountain, what do you see? What do you see? You don't see Glacier National Park. You don't see snow-capped mountains. You see fire. You see smoke. You see thunder or lightning. You hear thunder. And he just went up into there. They've already told him, you speak to us. As for this God, we're too terrified. He'll kill us. So we, we're afraid to draw near to him. That's where Moses is. So it's practical. It's a logical assumption that they're, they're certain this Moses guy is dead. And yes, there is this covenant God, but he's terrifying. He's holy. He's just. And we're not. We're not. And so it gives us understanding, a little bit of context. They're fearful. They know that they're supposed to go into the promised land, but this God whom Moses is with or who he's poss- Moses is possibly dead now, he's very scary. He's very scary. And yet they know they can't stay in the wilderness. So what do they do? What do they do? They make for themselves a golden idol. So turn in your Bibles. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. Let's understand the nature of idolatry. What's going on here at a core level in the hearts of these Israelites? And by way of application... When we participate in spiritual idolatry, what's going on? So we have here in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's verse 2. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods beside me or before me. That word before can be translated beside, before, underneath, on top of, in the near vicinity of. The general idea is I'm the only God that you should worship. There isn't any competition. There isn't any competition. So I'm it. Verse 5 or 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above, the earth beneath, or in the water that is under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your a jealous God. We'll stop right there. 
So the definition of idolatry is to worship that which is not God. In this case, the word image here, it's, the, it's where we get our word idol. An idol is an image. So idolatry is the worship of an image. It could be a physical image like a golden calf. It could also be something of the imagination that you imagine God to be in a way that God is not. How many of you, you probably haven't worshipped a golden calf. Now, if you are on the other side of the world, say in India, there are literal physical idols. There are millions of them everywhere. It's not our culture. But how many of you as Christians have said the following? It's okay. We're, we're in a family here. You can be vulnerable. You can admit this. How many of you have ever explained God somewhat, to, to someone this way? You know, I like to imagine God like. Anybody ever say that? That is spiritual idolatry if you're not careful. When you imagine God like a good shepherd to the exclusion of anything else, you're focused on one single solitary aspect of God. When you imagine God like a judge to the exclusion of all his other attributes, you're narrowing him and you're diminishing his characteristics. So there's a danger when we imagine God like a shepherd, like a judge. Now, like a father. But you're waiting, wait a minute. That's what the Bible says about him, right? That's true, but we, there's a caution here. Imagining God to be something that you identify with, but that doesn't describe and encapsulate all that God is. As you look at this, take a look at Exodus chapter 32, verse I believe it's five here. I believe it's five. So they make the golden calf, and then what does Aaron say right after he makes the golden calf? I'm hoping it's verse five. It says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the... The what? The Lord. He's worshiping God. But he's taking an attribute of God, his strength, his power, his might, and that's represented by the calf, and that's what's going to lead them forward. They're focused on one attribute of God as represented by a beast of burden. Now, of course, God is like that in the sense that he is powerful and he's strong, but he's not a brute beast. He's not dumb. He can't be led around by a bit and a bridle. So that's the essence or uh, the, 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 the definition of idolatry. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's understand this at a, at a heart level, what's going on here. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 21, Paul gives an excellent exposition of what's going on here. In Romans chapter 1, he says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind because although they know the truth about God, They suppress the truth because of unrighteousness, and they've exchanged the glory of God for a lie. Let's take a look at verse 21 in Romans chapter 1. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here it is, verse 23, hone in on it. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. The idolatry, if you want to understand it, it is essentially a exchange. It's a glory exchange. They exchange the glory of God for that which is not God. Now, the word glory, the word glory, it means praise, honor, and esteem. 
The Hebrew term for glory means weight, that which matters. To the Israelites, God alone possesses all glory. God is ultimately who matters. God is weighty, substantive. That's where glory is due. But they've exchanged the glory of God for that which is not God, but they think represents God, a golden calf. So God, who is altogether worthy of praise, they've exchanged the glory that is due God alone to that which is not glorious, an image fashioned by a man. The glory exchange. Now, in ancient times, idolatry, they would worship idols, the gods, the gods, if you will. And these gods were in control of different aspects of their lives. So Poseidon in the Greek uh, or Roman god would, 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 uh, would control the sea. You had different gods that were gods of fertility, gods of wine, gods of pleasure, gods of comfort, gods of commerce, gods of war. And each god had their own little icon or their own little, their own little idol, and, and people would worship those gods. If you were a sailor, you would sacrifice to Poseidon so you could get your product across the sea. And, and we think, oh, how primitive, how primitive. So the difference between now and then is we just cut out the middleman. We don't worship Poseidon. We just worship merchants or not merchants or we just worship commerce. We worship sex. We worship power. We worship approval. All of those things that the ancient gods, the people hope to give them, we just give ourselves to those principles. The idea is still the same. We've exchanged the glory of God for that which is not God, things which are gifts from God. Money, jobs, relationships, food, pleasure, sex. All of these things are good as used according to God's purposes. The things which are created, the gifts that God gives us. So we exchange the glory of the giver for the glory of the gift. And they're not comparable. They're not comparable. So that's the essence. That's the essence. Taking what is not God and giving it the role that only God should have. And these things become our functional saviors. Now, most of you, I don't pretend to know, uh, even most of you, but probably most of you consider yourselves followers of Christ. There are some of you, you're here tonight, and that's great. You don't know Christ. You don't pretend to follow him, but you're interested. Praise God that you're here. This is a good place to explore. You'll never be judged for asking hard questions or if you don't believe. But not all of you are followers of Christ, but most of you probably are. But even as followers of Christ, we have functional gods that we put alongside of God. And this gets to the essence of what was I thinking? Why do I do the things which I know I shouldn't do, but I do anyway? Let's take a look at the second thing we're going to cover tonight. We've looked at the nature of idolatry. Now let's take a look at the consequences of idolatry. First of all, from Exodus chapter 32, let's take a look at verse 7. Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them and they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up of the land of Egypt. 
The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. The first consequence of idolatry is wrath, wrath. We, by becoming idolaters, have walked away from God and declared ourselves an essential enemy to God. Now, I love this text for a lot of different reasons, but probably my favorite part is that God pulls the, um, your kid did this. How many of you as parents, when you're, or when you were kids, your parents, if you got into big trouble, your mother said to your father, your son, look at what your son did. This is exactly what God says to Moses, your people whom you delivered out of Egypt. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought you bore them out on eagle's wings, and now it's all on me? You could just hear Moses saying that or thinking that. But the idea here is that God's wrath is now on them. God's wrath is now on them. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, but I'm going to pour my wrath out upon them. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is on mankind, on mankind. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, he says, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity to the fathers, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Of those who give themselves over to idolatry, his wrath remains on us, on them, on humanity. So that's the first consequence. The second consequence is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Take a look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle Paul says that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The next thing that happens is that our thinking becomes futile. That does not mean that we are stupid. It means that the end result of our intellectual reasoning and logic leads to futility or vanity leads to futility or vanity. If you take a look at Moses' confrontation with his brother Aaron later in the text, he's like, Aaron, what were you thinking? And so here's what Aaron said. He says, well, this is how it goes. You were up there. You didn't come back. They came to me. They put all this pressure on me. So they gave me their rings. They gave me their jewelry. I threw it, on this, I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. What? That's futile thinking. You tend to justify things which are absolutely absurd, and it leads to chaos, and it leads to destruction. So how many of you have heard this term, the educated imbecile? Okay, you can have a Ph.D. and be a complete fool and destroy your life and the lives of other people simply because you've been given over to idolatry, and it just is a downward cycle. The next consequence as we continue through here, Romans chapter 4, or chapter 1, but it's also seen in Exodus chapter 32, but explained in Romans in verse 30 or 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Three different times in Romans chapter 1, Verse 24, 26, and 28, it says that God gave them over to their sin. So when we engage in spiritual idolatry, God, uh, our thinking becomes futile. We do stupid things, things we know we ought not to do. And then God gives us over. It's kind of like Pharaoh. Fine, fine. You won't submit to me? Just go your own way. 
and we are given over to our own devices. This is never a good thing. This is ne- we want our freedom, and God says, good, fine, you just, just do what you do. You do you. You do you. I'll do me. You do you. And let me know how that goes. God gives man over to his sin. And what does that lead to? Further sin. Further sin. Debauchery. Complete lawlessness. Tim Keller, I love this statement. It's so, it's, it, it's, it captures the essence of sin. He says the two, first two commandments, the commandment to only worship God and only worship God alone, that is, the, the violation of that command is the sin beneath all sin. You cannot break commandments three through ten without blowing through one and two. So think of the what was I thinking question. The, the whatever it was that you did or you didn't do, and you're thinking, why didn't I do that? Or why did I do that? Why did I hurt that person? Or why was I so selfish? The answer to the question is because you and I, at that moment, were in passionate worship of our functional saviors. And the name of the Savior wasn't Jesus at the moment, or we wouldn't have done it, or we would have done what we should have done. That's always the case, the sin beneath the sin. Okay, think about this. Uh, How many of you, crowd participation, how many of you have told a lie? The hands that didn't go up, you can now raise your hand too because you are now part of the crowd. You have just told a lie. Everyone has told a lie. Now the question is why? Why do we lie? We lie in order to get something we do not yet have or protect something we're afraid we're going to lose. So think about sometime, a, maybe a professor, a roommate, a spouse, uh, someone you're in a relationship, a mom or a dad said the, following, said the following, asked the following question. Did you do this, whatever they told you to do, and they're checking up on you? Did you do this? And you say, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But you didn't. Why would you lie? Why would you lie? Because at that moment, what you desire most is what rules your heart. And what you desire most is their approval. Why do young Christian kids who come off to college at the University of Iowa who are raised in Christian homes and they get their little purity rings and they come off to school and they say, I'm never going to give myself to anyone except my future spouse. Why do they then break that promise and give themselves to someone else? Well, you say, well, because they were caught up in lust and and passion. That's not deep enough. Why? Why? Primarily because, yes, Jesus is my Savior, but I have to have the approval of this man or this woman. So I will now give myself to them as my functional savior in the hope that my life will now have meaning. You see how that works? This is primarily the sin of idolatry and spiritual adultery. Long before it's literal adultery, this is the way sin works. Every sin that I've ever committed, every time I've neglected Stacy, every time I've hurt one of my friends, every time I failed to comfort someone in need, it is because I am in the passionate act of worship to some other God other than Jesus. And there are not any exceptions. Every sin has at its root the sin of idolatry. So when I, when I first became a Christian, I thought these Israelites were idiots. And now I'm like, I'm with you right there. Right there. And the consequences. 
Steve last week preached on all of these other laws from Exodus 30 or 20 through 31. The don't harvest to the edge of your crops. Leave some for the orphan and for the widow. Well, when you worship an idol and that idol is commerce and that idol is wealth, you say, no, don't tell me how much I can maximize my own profits. When you worship the bottom line or the bottom dollar, and then God says, set aside one day in seven and rest and don't make other people rest. You say, don't tell me when I can and can't work. Do You see how this is? And when we worship gods which are not God, all of those laws which are given to, for the good of human flourishing and to create a just and a, and a, and a good society, all those things are out the window. Think about, think about, how many of you ever heard this, heard this term? You know, it's just business. How many of you ever heard that? It's just, what does that mean? Here's when you hear, it's just business. You hear the phrase, it's just business, right after someone in business has either gotten screwed or is going to screw someone else. Is that truth? That is truth. Why? Because in business, we know that the God is the God of the bottom line, and therefore we will harvest to the edge of the crops. We will not honor the Sabbath, and we will bribe. What do you think lobbyists do in Washington all week long? They peddle cash so that they can peddle influence. And who are the people that don't have influence? The people without the cash. And hence, you wonder why we live in a justless society. Because we are a nation, we are a people that is trapped in the cycle of Romans 1. Exchanging the glory of God for a lie. Worshiping that which is not God. And then we wonder why we, why we, why we do what we do. We are all passionately engaged in worship all of the time. All of the time. Sometimes here at Old Brick, passionately worshiping Jesus, and then Monday morning we're worshiping some other God. So, where's the hope? There is no hope. I'm just going to pray. We're all going to go home depressed. No, I'm just kidding. There is a third part here, and that is where is the hope? Uh, the command itself, honestly, the command itself not to worship idols is not hopeful. Just take a look here, just to depress you further. I'm just, just it's important that we look at this. Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water that's beneath earth the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, let's stop right there. So where's the hope? Here's where the hope isn't. Did you know that if you're an idolater that God's going to visit your iniquity? How many of you all of a sudden, I'm just, I'm filled with hope. I'm going to smash my idols. I know that from this point forward, I'm never going to lie again, and I'm never going to do anything dumb. No, the threat of punishment or wrath never prevents anyone from engaging in full-scale idolatry. Did it prevent Israel? Nope. Didn't prevent them. But there's mercy here. There's a promise. It says in, in, uh, in verse 6 here, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That sounds hopeful, but it's not. Who does God show mercy and love to, according to this text? What's it say? To those who love me and keep my commandments. We've already made a golden calf and demonstrated we have other loves. Do you see the problem here? 
The law does not give hope. It merely shows us what righteousness is and that we ain't it. So where is the hope? Fast forward here to Exodus 32. Let's take a look at Moses talking with God. We're going to jump through some of what happened. We're not going to look at everything here. But take a look at verse 30. Here's where our hope comes from. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You have Moses here, the shepherd, Moses the intercessor that goes before God and he says to his people, perhaps I can make atonement. And then when he stands before this God, he says, forgive their sin and if you won't, blot me out of your book. And then it just kind of leaves, it just stops there. God kind of goes forward. He doesn't blot them out. He doesn't blot Moses out. You don't see any atonement. It's just kind of like, well, did he or didn't he? Moses says, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. The word atonement, it means, it means to appease wrath. It, 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 another word that's used, it can be translated propitiate, to appease the wrath of, of a justly, righteously anger, angry God. Perhaps I can appease his wrath. Moses can't appease the wrath of God. He didn't appease the wrath of God. And Moses' name was not blotted out of the book, and neither was Israel's. It just kind of just hung there. It hung there because there would come a day when a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, who would bless the nations, would make atonement. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, says that Jesus Christ was made like us and suffered like us so he could become a better high priest, so he could make atonement for our sin. And when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was blotted out of the book. He experienced what you and I should experience for our spiritual idolatry. And here's the beauty of what happened upon that cross. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, please turn there. Paul explains what just took place. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made our golden calves and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that in Christ is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, in the ESV says propitiation. In the NIV, it says an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what took place on the cross. Jesus Christ did not climb Sinai. He climbed Calvary. 
And when he went to Calvary, he made atonement. Not perhaps, but he made atonement for your idolatry and for mine. The wrath which was due you and I, Christ absorbed in its full. And the merit that was due Christ and Christ alone was imputed to you and I. And that is the gospel. And that's what crushes idols. The only thing which can dethrone an affection or a love for that which is not God is a greater affection. And the only thing which can stir up a love for God is the love of God poured out in our hearts. When we meditate, when you meditate on what Christ has done for your sin, unmerited by you or I, does it not stir within you a passion and a question, how could he do that for me? And the answer is found not in me, but in his love. And from that, a heart of love is fanned into a flame and all other idols are pushed off the throne of our hearts. The gospel is the only cure for idolatry. Jesus Christ climbed that hill, fulfilled the law, and atoned for our idolatry. And it is by grace through faith that you and I receive justification, our salvation, and are sanctified in being made into his likeness. So I would encourage you, Psalm 139, ask the Lord to search your heart and show you any wicked way in you. Show you. Say, Lord, show me the idols. On your app, on the Grace B3 app, there is a identifying idols of the heart. It's been made available to you before after various sermons, but it's a great exercise that you can go through with the Holy Spirit, with the Scriptures, and allow the Lord to show you the various types of idols they won't look like a golden calf, but they might look like approval. They might look like uh, pride. They might look like any number of things, but this is a wonderful application that you can use to help draw you closer to Christ and help him identify things which you need to take down off the altar of your heart, the throne of your heart, and replace that with the love of God that comes through Christ. For some of you, the first step is just to receive forgiveness for your sins in knowing that it's not your church attendance, it's not your moral righteousness, it's not what you do or what you don't do, it's what Christ has done, what he has accomplished. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, and this is not of work so that no one can boast. So your first step is to receive him as Savior and then walk in him by faith through grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your gift of eternal life. Thank you for your son, for his righteousness for his love, for his sacrifice, for his substitutionary atonement. Lord, that you and I, all of us here today, can be made one with you, reconciled. We no longer need to fear wrath, but instead, Lord, we can bask in the love that you have for us, that you demonstrated for us on the cross. Would you encourage us with the hope that's in the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.